0: Welcome to the ninth season of Heart to Heart with Anna. Our theme this season is advancements in congenital heart disease, and we have a really good show for you today. Today's show is the advancements of family-centered care in the congenital heart defect community, and our guests are Susan Romanesco and Michelle Steltzer. Susan J. Romanesco is the mother of four adult children. Her second son, Greg, was born in April 1968 with a diagnosis of complex single ventricle he was not expected to live until his second birthday, but he did. He underwent a series of surgeries throughout his lifetime, including a Fontan procedure. Sue managed to keep a growing family in check, help build their family home, grow a small family electrical business with her husband, and teach her children important values as they negotiated living with a child with an uncertain future. Although the congenital heart defect diagnosis was frightening, she always managed to stay positive, keep the faith, hope, and love alive, and... Her practical approach to life helped the family live each day to the fullest. Michelle Steltzer, Sue's daughter, has 20 years of nursing experience in fields from oncology to pediatric cardiology. She received both her bachelor and master's degrees in nursing from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Michelle had a critical role in the development of the first home surveillance monitoring program for pediatric cardiology patients way back in 1999. She then worked collaboratively with the Joint Council on Congenital Heart Disease Quality Initiative while employed in Boston. Michelle expanded feeding protocols within congenital heart disease to include breastfeeding. In addition to having worked at Boston Children's Hospital and Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Michelle now works as a pediatric nurse practitioner at Ann and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago. Growing up with a sibling with a CHD, Michelle learned by experience and by watching her mother just what services were lacking for our CHD family. So welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, Michelle, and Sue.
2: Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us.
0: Well, I'm so excited to have a mother-daughter duo on the show today. I'm going to start with you, Sue. It blows my mind that you had a baby in the 60s who had such a complex diagnosis. Did they even use the words single ventricle with you, or how did they explain to you what was wrong with your son's heart?
3: We could tell that... He was blue, and they called it at that time a blue baby. Uh It was real scary because we thought he was just like our first son who was just born normal and had no problems. Right. This was a total surprise.
0: I'm sure it was. You don't have any family history of congenital heart defects?
3: No, we don't.
0: So you have this baby, and could they tell right away that something was wrong?
3: They could tell right away, Dr. Van said he always took care of us as we were younger and he took care of all my kids. Mm-hmm. And he just knew right away something was wrong and knew that Greg had to see a cardiologist because of his color. He was real blue and very, all I remember is blue. He was yeah. really, really blue. Right, And then he had to go within 24 hours. They took him to Milwaukee Children's Hospital and he met his cardiologist. And I ended up staying at St. Elizabeth's because in those days, when you had a baby, you were in the hospital for a week. Not like now you have a baby and you go home. Right. Yeah. Yeah, So he went with my husband. He went with my husband to Children's Hospital in Milwaukee and I stayed behind with some of my family.
0: How far is it from one of the hospitals to the other? Two hour ride. Wow. So you must have been really panicked because here you are in a hospital two hours away and you're told you have a blue baby. And back then, that was the term that they used, blue baby. Did they give you any idea of what they thought was wrong or what they thought needed to happen?
3: They just knew that he had to see a cardiologist. So they took him by ambulance and. My husband and his dad went, mm-hmm. and I stayed back with my mom and my family.
0: So when did they finally give you a diagnosis?
3: I'm thinking it had to be a couple of days that they went through all the testing that he had, catheterization and checking everything out, and found out he had a transposed heart and that he had heart problems.
0: Right, right. And... Really, to even tell you transposed heart, that was probably a lot of information for back then.
3: It was for our family physician, but he could tell that,
0: yeah. So did they tell you that he had to have surgery right away?
3: No, they didn't. At that time, I don't think there was anything they could do. They just told us that he would probably only live to be two years old.
0: That just must have been heartbreaking for you.
2: Yes, it was.
0: Now, when did you have Michelle? 25
2: months later, after Greg. Right.
0: Okay, so you get pregnant again.
3: Very scary. Very scary.
0: I can (laughs) only imagine. So you get pregnant again. You're told that this little boy that you have probably isn't going to make it to age two. And you're pregnant while he's getting ready to turn two. Were you afraid that at any date that he would just not be awake when you went in to wake him up that morning
3: yes we were afraid of that but i also was afraid of that something might have happened with the baby i was carrying also
0: oh that's true so they didn't even have any tests back then really that they could do to tell you did they
3: no they didn't well wow. you, know, you just got pregnant and it's not like now you have ultrasounds
0: right Yep. Well, we so. have all kinds of tests that they can do now, but you're right. With the ultrasounds, especially, you get a lot more information. When did he have his surgery? Did you have Michelle before he had his surgery?
3: He had a surgery in 1970, and Michelle must have been about, what, Michelle, three months old? Yes, I was three months old.
0: Yeah. So when Michelle was born, did she look blue at all, too? Were you panicked nope. that she might look nope. blue?
3: We were panicked while I was pregnant, and even when I was pregnant with my last boy, that something could go wrong. But with sure. Jeff, the first one, you never thought about that.
0: Right, right. It's not something that you typically think of. So you had a three-month-old baby, and then you had to hand your two-year-old over to a surgeon?
3: Right. Wow. You put your trust in them.
0: right. Now, what did they tell you about that operation? What kind of surgery did he have? Did he have the Blalock-Tossig shunt?
3: Michelle, that's your question. Yes, he did.
0: Yes,
2: (laughs) yeah, he did.
0: Well, that was the surgery that was created by Helen Tossig and Dr. Blalock, and that was what they used for quote-unquote blue babies way back when. And then that surgery is still used today. Isn't it amazing, Michelle? That even though it, it was created so many years ago, you can't improve upon. the <laughs> yeah, classic, I guess. <laughs> it's amazing
2: to see the progression of surgery just in my lifetime alone, not right. to mention prior to that. It's pretty impressive, yeah. the evolution.
0: So today we're talking about family-centered care. And that must have been really hard for you to be able to care for Greg when you had Jeff and you had... Michelle. And they were not at your local hospital. Isn't that true that Greg was not at the local hospital? He was at a hospital a couple hours away from home, right? Right.
3: But I was blessed with a huge family mm-hmm. on my side and on my husband's side. And they all live right in the valley here. So it was really nice to have the extra help.
2: Absolutely. We live in Takana, Wisconsin, which is uh-huh. um In between Appleton and Green Bay, we make cheese by Lambeau Field, and there's a lot of family just a few miles away, which was really a blessing.
0: That is a huge blessing, and not everybody has that, but that does make a big, big difference. So when you took Greg to the hospital for the surgery, was there a Ronald McDonald house like there is today? Was there a place for you to stay while he was undergoing this really scary procedure? Not at the
3: first one. I'm thinking we went back and forth. Mm -hmm. No matter when any of our kids were in the hospital, we never left them alone. You always stayed with, even though it was against the rules that you had to leave by 8 o'clock, visiting hours were over. We never left our kids alone.
2: There wasn't a Ronald McDonald house back then. My mom is right. My father tells the story of there were some options. Today, families have like recliners that can roll down into a bed that you can potentially stay at the bedside based on discretion of how the kids are doing. But back then, they didn't have that. They didn't have a Ronald McDonald house. And there was some sort of sleeping areas in the hallway that had little curtains around them and in between I-beams that families could try to get some rest at. But it also was where healthcare providers were in heavy traffic. That's my understanding of what they did when Greg had surgery, that they stayed there to provide some support for Greg.
0: Well, that's amazing that they even let you do that because my son was born in 1994, and they discouraged us from being with our baby around mm-hmm. the clock.
3: We were there, we would just hang around. You knew you were not going to leave him alone.
0: Too scary. He was very lucky to have parents like you, because even in the 90s, when I was in a hospital with my son, the parents would come and go, and they didn't just stay. So that's pretty remarkable that you were able to arrange it so that Greg didn't have to be alone.
3: Yeah, well, it just worked out that that's the way it had to be.
0: Wow. Well, you're a phenomenal mom. (laughs) Tell me about what kind of resources they gave you when you took that sick baby home and you had to wait for two years to bring him back to have surgery.
3: What did they give you? They just told us we had to keep track of everything, how much he drank, how much he went to the bathroom, you know, we had a diaper. We bought a scale and we had a book and we would record every single thing that he did. If he had a bottle, how much he drank. If he had wet pants, how much it weighed. You know, it's kind of like you had to take care of your own stuff. And then when we'd go back to visit, then he would let us know if he was growing right.
0: So a lot of babies who are born with congenital heart defects are what's called failure to thrive, where they just don't gain much weight because their body is working so hard just to stay alive that they don't gain much weight. Was Greg very tiny?
3: He was small when he was born, but he did gain weight that, actually, I want to say right now, looking at some of his baby pictures, he looked a little bit (laughs) bloated. But no, he was, Uh, he was good. And they always, that was one of the mm -hmm. big concerns was how much he weighed. Mm
0: -hmm. How often did you have to go back to see the doctor when he was little?
3: It started out like every other week. First it was a week and then every other and they'd go down and then it was monthly. And then it was like maybe every Mm -hmm. other month, but never longer than that. You know, it was kind of like you had your special times you had to go. When he got older and into school, then it ended up that it was at least a yearly check every year. We never missed a year.
0: Mm -hmm. Let's talk about when he was a baby a little bit, because you took home what we would consider today a critically ill baby. For two years, it doesn't sound like they gave you very much support, though. Was there a nurse that you could call if you had questions? We had
3: our Dr. Van Lee out He's a family doctor around here, and this is kind of like old time that he would take calls no matter what time it was at night or any time during the day. You'd call him, and that was it. We had our Little shoot Library, which uh, everything was pretty much more words than what we understood. But we sure. never really thought that... Critical, you know, took care of him as a critical baby. He was our Greg. He had a little extra problem, but <laughs> it was what we had to deal with, and he just fit in with the rest of the kids.
0: That's awesome. So it doesn't sound like you were too overprotective of him, that you just you took care of him the way you had to, and then you just went about your business.
3: Yeah, I think he made his own limits, and as much as he could do, he would do. If he couldn't do it, he didn't do it. Mm-hmm.
0: So there had to be some time when he was an infant before he had that first life-saving surgery that were scary for you. Like a lot of our kids will get severe infections like RSV or pneumonia where they end up back in a hospital. Did Greg ever end up in a hospital?
3: I can't remember him being a lot of hospital stays for that. I think it more so than anything, he was he was pretty normal. He'd get the colds and stuff. No matter when a cold came in, he would have it, you know, that, mm-hmm. and they all get it at one time. They all went through the oh, yeah. chicken pox. They all went through the measles. Oh, they, wow. You know, they had wow. all the normal things, but I think he was pretty normal in that way.
2: Yeah, I had the chicken pox with my brother. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, you did. Just the simple nature of, you know, like my mom was talking about the library and everything being in medical, like there was no teaching sheets about heart failure with kids or what to expect, giving your baby a bath and being colder or taking a longer time to recover from a bath. Just a simple diagnosis of complex, you know, univentricular disease with dextrocardia, L-transposition, LSVC, common atrium, common atrial ventricular valve, severe pulmonary stenosis. Right ventricular dominance, situs ambiguous, mesocardia, left-sidedness, polysplenia, having a BT shunt. I mean, how do you even say those words, pronounce them <laughs> as, 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 exactly. a, as a healthcare provider, let alone what does that mean for a parent and their child and how does that integrate into a family life right. to help that family live a normal life?
0: You know, right, there, right. there wasn't
2: anything there. There wasn't, wasn't all of my aunts and uncles of that era. They did what they had to do because that's what they had to do. You know, sure. they used the resources that were available and they just made the best of it and went forward and were resilient.
0: Yeah. So in a way, your mom did have a family-centered care approach because she had so many siblings around it sounds like she had a lot and her mother was there her father was there it sounds like your dad's parents were there as well it sounds like you really did have a family-centered approach but a lot of families aren't close like that anymore
2: that's true that's very true
3: and our family didn't really know what we were going through they were mostly anytime we needed them a babysitter right. any one of them would be over oh,
0: that's awesome Nowadays, it looks like thanks to you and thanks to a lot of people like you who saw the need to get the family more involved with the care, we have these family-centered approaches even for families who don't have large extended family around them. They seem to be finding a way to make that nuclear family part of the healing process. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that because it wasn't like that in the 90s when I was in the hospital. They really discouraged the family from being around. I had to go steal a chair from the nurse's station just to be able to sit with my son because he was In an open bay, the parents would come in, they would check on their kids, and they would leave. And so my husband and I were the oddballs to be there around the clock with our kids. We set up shifts so that somebody would always be with Alex. And it sounds like your mom and your dad were there for Greg, but that had to be so unusual in the 70s because I know it was unusual in the 90s. Can you talk to us a little bit about the big change in having more of a family centered approach to dealing with children with chronic illness?
2: In the big picture, I think that everybody has really embraced that approach and realizes the need and the value of providers and parents and siblings and pediatricians and cardiologists and surgeons and respiratory therapists, like everybody is part of the same team. Right. And I think that process has really, it's taken a while to evolve, but I think we're embracing that more. And I think we're fostering that more so that those families who maybe don't have as much family support, they're not left there alone. Like they do have connections to people and they do right. have supports mm-hmm. and, and ways to navigate the systems to maintain the best possible outcome Mm
0: -hmm. in
2: the most healthy way.
0: So Sue, one of the things that was really, really helpful to me as the mom of a heart child was that while Alex was in the hospital, I met three other families who had children with the same diagnosis. And that became my support group. And even though none of us lived in the same city, I got phone numbers of all of them and I kept in touch by telephone because back then we didn't even have the internet. I didn't really get online until my son was two. You sure weren't online because there really was no internet back in the (laughs) 70s. Did you meet some other families while you were there? Did you have any kind of support network that was medical?
3: When Greg had his first Surgery. We didn't really have any contact. We were just pretty much with Greg. But when he had his surgery in 1985, when we spent a month down in Rochester, then we did meet some families from Canada and Mm from, where's the other one from? I can't remember, but two families that we got really close to. Mm -hmm. And we did keep up with them for a while to check on how their kids were doing and stuff. But earlier on, we didn't really have anyone to talk to.
0: Yeah. That must have been
3: really hard. That
1: was hard. Yeah. The most common themes that I hear is why.
0: She always needed um, a lot of attention. She had strokes.
3: Even though it's a natural inclination to withdraw from the CHD community, I think being a part of it helped me be part of the solution.
1: Heart to heart with Michael. Please join us every Thursday at noon Eastern. I'm Michael Lieben, and I'll be your host as we talk with people from around the world who have experienced those most difficult moments. When I saw so many of these CHG groups growing, I found family just ready to join me.
2: Anyone who is a member of the adult congenital heart defect community can be a guest on our show.
1: We have a great year planned, and we look forward to sharing it other interesting topics heart to heart with nicole and david serving the achd community wednesdays at noon eastern you are listening to heart to heart with anna if you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show please send an email to anna jaworski at anna at heart to heart with anna.com that's anna at heart to heart with anna.com now back to heart to heart with anna
0: So, Michelle, do you think that having Greg as a brother is what influenced you to become a nurse? Because it sounds like your mom was really good at involving the whole family with his healing and with his care. And I imagine you saw hospitals and doctors and nurses a little bit more than the average child did way back in the the 70s and 80s.
2: I think in retrospect, it has. I didn't realize it at the time by any means. I have probably all of my siblings, was a little bit more interested in the process. And whether it's because I was closer in age or whatever the interest was, I went to more of the visits in Milwaukee. And I guess that maybe fostered a little bit more interest in nursing. I know my dad, when I was in that high school age, was talking about nursing would be a good career. And I had an aunt and I talked to about that and didn't really realize the impact of the prior years that had on it. But I did wind up exploring it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. I realized that when I worked in an adult care center that with Alzheimer's that I really didn't like adult patients so much that I liked the kids. Mm -hmm. I was a lot like my mom in that respect. And then throughout my nursing career, I had clinicals in different areas. And I've always kind of been drawn back to that population of cardiac care. And I guess in the end, he did really have a very big impact, although I didn't realize it at the time. Yeah, I kept wanting to learn more.
0: Yeah. Okay. So come on. You just spouted off a few minutes ago a whole page full of terms. Surely your mother didn't know he had a splenia and the blalotosic shun and all those different terms that you rattled off. Did you go back and learn more about your brother's condition after you became a nurse?
2: Yes, definitely. Okay. <laughs> because, definitely.
0: Yeah, I just couldn't believe all the terms that you expressed and I know that back then they just didn't even have all of that information to give the parents, or they knew that most parents wouldn't be able to comprehend all those different terms. From our terms
2: growing up, it was, quote, the plumbing was wrong and needed to be fixed. Right.
0: You know, there was
2: a little valve problems. There was not as much blood flow to the lungs. But I don't think there was any kind of language. No, we knew him as
3: a blue baby. Right. That, yeah
2: to the degree of what I know today and Mm -hmm. what Greg knew today as well. And I think we're doing much better about that Mm -hmm. in recent years as far as educating families and getting them to understand the diagnosis and then getting the kids to understand the diagnosis as they're growing up.
0: Right. That was really critical to me for my son to know. And I had a medic alert bracelet for him. Did you even have anything like that, Sue?
3: We did later on. Oh, did you? Later, but not until, like, high school age. Mm-hmm. Then he had a medical alert bracelet.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was yeah. really important to me for my son to understand his medications. So I remember even when he was, golly, I want to say, I think he was four or five years old, and he was able to say digoxin, which is kind of tough for a little kid to say, but it was really <laughs> important for me to, that he knew he was on digoxin, he was on baby aspirin. What kind of medications did Greg have to take?
3: I think Greg only took digit. What Digitoxin. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He so, had the one pill every day.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, when Alex was a baby, we gave it to him in drops. Did you do that yeah, too? Yeah, we that did that. Yeah, it smelled did. like candy apples. It <laughs> smelled like bubble gum. Oh, yours smelled <laughs> like bubble gum. How funny! <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> well, and I was told that he would be on that for his whole life can't even imagine what they told you. They probably didn't even tell you that much, did they?
3: When Greg was born, they told us there was nothing they could do for him. But then in his lifetime, all his surgeries were invented in his lifetime. Because I'm thinking that's why they didn't start out right away. Like mm-hmm. you said, your son, well, they were waiting for it to get further and further down the road because it wouldn't have helped Greg as much if he would have had it right away. So we had to live out the... F- longer years first to see what how far it would be advanced in his lifetime
0: yeah and he was lucky to be alive when they were making these advances right now michelle you started some protocols for family-centered care can you talk to us about that and about how that's different than what you grew up with as a family
2: Honestly, when I started becoming a nurse practitioner in 1999, I really didn't have the complete awareness that my mom was using a scale back then because, one, I was so young, Mm -hmm. and the scale was already sold at a rummage sale somewhere.
0: Oh, my goodness. So you didn't (laughs) see it.
2: (laughs) So I didn't really realize it was a part of our family. Sure. But... I do remember Nancy Rudd and I were one of two new nurse practitioners and the first nurse practitioners within the cardiology program there that the group of surgeons and cardiologists were all talking about morbidity and mortality issues with the interstage kids and really wanted to move the platform forward. And now looking back, it took 32 years to get from a point where my mom was doing to actually formalizing a protocol like my mom was doing. And Mm -hmm. including a regimented teaching with a scale and a pulse ox and a log binder. And certainly we, Nancy and I, learned a lot along the way. We learned what worked, what didn't work. Families gave us lots of good suggestions from that as well. And through that dialogue and interplay with those families, those first families, we learned a lot. And we continue to learn a lot every day. Mm -hmm. about what are the essential components, what kind of scale, a digital scale and a continuous pulse ox. What makes me smile when I look back today, having worked in three different centers, is that Milwaukee was the first to sort of formally invent this program and make it work and actually impact kids' lives and we shamelessly shared it with institutions mm-hmm. from the East Coast to the West Coast. I had a call when my son was one year of eight. I was taking a call from New Zealand about somebody who wanted to learn about the program to implement it. And if anybody ever asked about it, you know, we we're like, okay, this is what we're doing. This is what we're learning and this is how we're doing it. And what makes me smile is that when I've gone to these other centers, I see some of the same documentation and orders and things that we shared in other institutions. It makes me so happy to see that this is impacting so many families throughout the nation and the world sure. and maintaining mm-hmm. that altruistic heart for all these kids.
0: Right, right. Well, don't you think that necessity is a mother of invention? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we just saw that there was such a need. They called Alex a walking time bomb. Mm-hmm. Which no How no doctor scary. should ever say that, to a but they told me that he probably wasn't going to survive to the second surgery. I was panicked, Sue, because we lived three and a half hours away from the hospital where my son had treatment, and I lived way out in the country. There wasn't a hospital anywhere close. The closest hospital was a 30-minute drive, and so I asked the doctor, well, do I need to move to San Antonio? Do I need to move where he had his surgery? And the doctor said to me, even if I had Alex on the table in front of me, if something were to happen, I wouldn't be able to open him up fast enough. mm mm-hmm. Wow. Which was just terrifying to have to hear that. And so... There just weren't the protocols. I'm so glad that you have come up with something. And I actually talked to Dr. Gilronofsky earlier this season, and he talked about a roadmap for success where all of the different hospitals who are treating children with these kinds of problems – would have a schedule, not just for the heart procedures, but also looking at the other organs that may be involved and some of the other things that need to be looked at. So there is some consistency from place to place. And it sounds to me like you're already seeing some of that consistency, right, Michelle?
2: Yes. Yeah. It warms my heart to see it. And it warms my heart to see that These institutions that are in silos are working together collaboratively with the joint collaborative that Mm -hmm. I was involved with in Boston. Just the collaboration amongst different hospitals to just really formalize and more seamlessly implement these so that everybody gets the same consistent care. And we know it works. Right. We know it impacts, and in Boston, we did it in five different languages and a handful oh, wow. of international families,
0: wow. and
2: it is such a positive thing to see
0: mm-hmm.
2: in just a short period of time from 2000 until 2017 to see that change happen.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, and you were part of it, which is so exciting, and Sue, you were part of it, too. Because you're the one who gave birth to this special baby and you did everything that it took to keep him alive.
2: He went on to complete his high school. He went on to college. He continued to have as best a quality of life as possible, married and had a family.
0: That's amazing.
2: Greg was a big research proponent and he realizes that every advancement happened in his lifetime and he was able to benefit from it.
0: Isn't that amazing? Michelle is a nurse who's working with these children with critical congenital heart defects. What advice would you give families about involving the whole family in caring for the child?
2: One of the things that I think is really valuable for families to hear going towards the future is that what happened in my mom's time frame, what happened with your son's time frame, of growing up and what is happening for today's family is that it's going to continue to progress. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're on the cusp of the next big change in the family engagement and we've done so well in the inner stage with teaching. Mm-hmm. And what I see as a practitioner is that families as they come to a glen Things get lifted and families are just isolated, like they don't know what to do. And mm-hmm. and a lot of families have like maybe an NG at home or a G2 mm-hmm. and they're hypervigilant. They don't know what to do, but we also know that it's a safer physiology and that we've taken them out of this bigger risk period and that there's technology options that might be able to help guide management. And unload the burden of families overly being vigilant about the feedings and helping in the background with visits, coaching about what they can do for
0: the future. I love that. I love that. That's the area we needed to change. I don't feel like we were coached very much. I don't feel there was much education. I had to create it myself. And that was really hard (laughs) because I was so afraid I was making it up as I was going along. Sue, I bet you felt the same way, too. You were making it up as you go along. How do you become the parent of a child with a chronic illness? There really was no book for anything. (laughs) There was no book for something like that. Definitely. Yeah, you just went along. And I just had to believe that God gave me Alex for a reason. And that he also gave me a mission. And my mission was just like your daughter's. My mission was to get out there and to educate other parents and to inspire them. And it sounds like you were so inspiring for your daughter, Sue. I commend you. I mean, wow, thanks to you, my son had a chance because your son helped pave the way for kids like my son to make it. So thank you.
3: Well, you're welcome. Thank you also. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Thank you, ladies, for coming on the show today. I feel like I learned so much.
2: There's just been so much more growth in the education in the last decades.
1: Yeah, Teaching tools,
2: handouts, mm-hmm. the one that Tara Spearhead in Boston, including the parental involvement. I mean, there's just, there's yeah. so many opportunities that we're going to make a difference for families.
0: Well, we have made a difference. Yeah. You have made a difference. Greg made it to adulthood. My son's now 22. He has made it to adulthood. And just 50 years ago, all of these babies died. Mm-hmm. There was no hope for them. And thanks to Dr. Norwood for believing that babies with HLHS could survive. Thanks to Dr. Fontaine mm-hmm. <laughs> for creating the Fontaine procedure. We have a whole cohort of adults living with these really complex hearts. And we have learned a lot from watching them grow up. And we've learned that we do need to educate the parents better because if the parents are more educated, then the children make it to adulthood. And now we've had to go another step. Now we really need to educate these adults so they understand what's going on, so they have a good quality of life. And so we had a huge shift from let's help these kids survive to let's help them have a great quality of life, which is tremendous. Mm-hmm. It really is tremendous. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Sue. I loved chatting with you and getting to know you.
3: Same here. Thank you very much.
0: And Michelle, thank you for all that you're doing for families like mine. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much for everything that you're doing, too. You're really sharing a very valuable gift with so many people throughout the country and internationally to help make things better for families of today and the future. And that is really a priceless gift.
0: Oh, well, thank you for saying that. I know. Would you have ever thought, Sue, that two moms, you know, <laughs> decades apart, giving birth to children with complex hearts, would be talking like this on no, the No, I
3: never would have, and if it wasn't <laughs> for my daughter, we wouldn't. <laughs> but yeah. I'm very proud of everything she's doing. <laughs>
0: Of course, I am too. Thank you for bringing us together, Michelle. This has been priceless. I do appreciate it.
2: Well, thank you so much for having us on the show and um, wishing you all the best.
0: Well, thank you. So that does conclude this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Thanks for listening today. Please come back next week on Tuesday at noon Eastern time. Until then, please check out our website, hearttoheartwithanna.com and follow our show. Remember, my friends, you are not alone.
1: summer camps for CHD survivors, and much, much more. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you have been inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart defect community. Heart to Heart with Anna, with your host Anna Jaworski, can be heard every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time.